0: Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners and welcome to the people that now watch us on YouTube. Um, thank you very much for listening and, and, and viewing. Um, another episode of The Edge today. Um really happy to have Patrick Carter on today. We're going to talk uh, about cloud and a few other things. And we'll ask some fun questions at the end. Um, but I guess, Patrick, the first question that I ask everyone um, is kind of tell me about yourself. Tell me about your journey, kind of how did you get into tech? How did it go? And, and where are you kind of today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I Always appreciate you know opportunity to kind of talk about some of the fun things at least that I'm passionate about. Um, and yeah, I got my journey you know kind of straight out of college. Um, was I graduated college in uh, 07, which uh, as anyone knows, oh seven oh eight was not the best time to be coming out of university, but uh, mm-hmm. I was. And in finding myself, and I had a good friend that actually worked for a Cisco bar at the time. And they had just landed a massive contract and, and needed some help. And, and they were just like, we'll train you. Just come come work for us. Uh, and it was a very sm- small organization. They had about 100 employees. But what was really cool is the, the CEO required everybody at the time to get a CCNA certification. So for those that don't know, that's a, you know, kind of an entry-level Cisco networking uh, certification. Um, but it didn't matter if you were a salesperson, if you worked in finance, if you just started. Everybody get that cert. And that kind of started the the my love of tech right and and in getting into networking uh from there i started looking into the security space because that interested me the most and at the time you know people everybody was migrating off of the old pix firewalls onto the new asa platform which was had, had just been released it's very popular and so i kind of got into that and um you know kind of had a a bit of a derailment 5 years later um I was diagnosed with an intramedullary spinal cord tumor, which is uh, an interesting type of uh, tumor that grows inside your spinal cord. And I had a very rare type. I was actually the 67th documented case of it, of all things. Uh, but I had to go through a lot of treatments and surgeries. I had to learn to walk again. So at the time, I stepped back from a career standpoint into a project management role and started doing P, uh, project program management of moved through that space a little bit because that allowed me to kind of do the things I needed to do to take care of myself at the time. Uh, but as I recovered and got better, uh, I kind of looked at, okay, well, what's the next step in my career? So I started doing security strategy consulting. And there uh, really, and this is, you know, 2015, 2016 timeframe, and that's where I, I really noticed, you know, the 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 uh, move to cloud. It's like, oh, that's, that's where it's at. I need to focus my energy there. And Ben did uh, so now I'm at a company called Sideris so and I run the cloud security practice. Uh, so we handle everything you know uh, from a cloud platform perspective as well as some of the uh, uh, integrated technologies into cloud. Uh, my team's agnostic, so I've got uh, you know, I've got team members that focus on GCP, some with AWS, others with Microsoft Azure and the M365 platform uh, of security controls. So E5 licenses, for those that are familiar, it's you know been a big potion. You know, every 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 CEO that gets it thrown in their laps says, "Well, now what?" <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, so I've been building that team out. Uh, so this what's interesting about our organization—we're run by one of the Shark Tank people, a guy named Robert Hirschbeck, is our CEO. So huge opportunity to work with him uh, and really build the practice. So when, before I joined, they actually did not have uh, a focused cloud security team. They did a little bit of cloud work, but they really brought me in to say, "Hey." Let's make this a, a true revenue stream in its own GPL. Um, and um, was able to, you know, build out, you know, a service portfolio, develop a good market strategy, work with our sellers, building out a pre-sales team. And I'm also responsible for our delivery programs as well.
0: Well, you've you've had quite a an intense journey. I mean, I'll, I'll get onto the the kind of surgery in a second because I wouldn't mind digging a little bit deeper. And I know that's not really technical, but I'm I'm interested. No, I in I, I don't mind talking about it. So. Um, but, but working somewhere where they force everyone to take a CCNA, I think that's a good idea. I mean, we talk a little bit about, or quite a lot actually on this podcast about kind of the fundamentals and needing, and needing a good foundation and to work somewhere where they, they make kind of everyone go through that. I mean, and you, you said it's an entry level, the CCNA. I'm not mm. sure it's really entry level, if I'm honest. I mean, I did it... Uh, quite a while ago, the gray hair will we'll tell you, and I I know John did it. I think you did the CCNP and also the CCIE almost, right?
2: Yeah, My, yeah. I went all the way to the CCIE written, so you passed yeah, that, and then yeah. and then I just but, ran out uh, of gas. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I, yeah, I think
2: I
1: to, to do that CCNA think... in, in, in the CCA, uh, CCNA, CCNA security and CCSP, I think they, they have it titled something different. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I
0: did the CCNA, and then I did the CCNP. Um, and then by the time I got around to taking the new one, my CCNA had expired and it, I didn't want to kind of go back and do it and it, it right. just became more dollars for Cisco. And I, I'm not sure I I wasn't that interested in networking. Um, funnily enough, I always tell everyone I'm not interested in networking and all the people that have ever worked for me have laughed because you just pick stuff up as you go along. Um,
1: right. But understanding how the behaviors of routable traffic and how we yeah. behave, um, you know, then you have to do those sort of things you have to understand even today as as old as that technology is and because you know this is stuff that has been around for my you know most of my lifetime but not all of my lifetime i was born in the early 80s so uh you know in uh, but it's still you know relevant today you know things like bgp still very relevant you know without bgp the internet Collapses
0: basically. So. Well, you need to know the packet, like the destination and the, and the delivery mechanism of the packet and the journey it's taken. And and fundamentally, no matter what we talk about from security point of view, the network is a network. I mean, even if we're talking about micro segmentation on lands and zero trust, et cetera, et cetera, if you're in any form of security, at some point, you need to know the journey of that packet. And Absolutely. You need to Absolutely. understand it.
1: Um yeah,' stress that
0: enough. yeah uh, but uh, but the the surgery element, I mean, you you so they find a tumor and then you had to learn to walk again. I mean that that yeah,
1: yeah. so it was uh kind of a, you know, I, I knew something wasn't right because I was having some balance issues and things like that. And I had actually just proposed to my wife uh, on Saturday. And I had the MRI uh on done on Monday, uh and you know, Tuesday, they called me with the results saying, hey, you've got a problem. Uh so yeah, so I was diagnosed with a very rare type of tumor called a uh, uh, ganglia glioma. Don't ask me how to spell it. <laughs> but it's uh very rare in the spinal cord. So this is in 2012. Um, and so it was in my cervical spine, so was, uh C2 to T1. Uh, so those familiar with uh you know spinal cord anatomy, you know, it's basically my entire neck. Um, so yeah, so I had to, I've had three surgeries thus far, I'm actually getting ready for a fourth of the race. I actually met with uh, my neuro-oncologist the other day and, and they said, we're probably going to need to go back in. But what's interesting is they basically have to, and you can, you know, you can look this up on YouTube and watch cool surgery. So I went to, uh, Johns Hopkins university, which is in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and they have one of the best neurosurgical, uh, departments in the world, uh, and I was fortunate enough to get in with the surgeon there um, who had some experience with my tumor type. And, and yeah, basically, they had to break five vertebrae in my neck um, and go in and dissect the spinal cord. And they were able to remove about 80 percent of the tumor. But in doing so, they damaged a lot of the nerves and, and, and uh, you know, ultimately, you know, kind of messed up the uh some of my uh, mobility, for example. So, yeah, when I woke up from surgery, yeah, I was, I couldn't feel anything below my neck, much, much less walk. So yeah, I had to go through um, a lot of physical therapy to learn to walk again. Uh, And still, I still have diminished uh, sensation and feeling, especially my lower extremities. But uh, it's been a journey. It definitely humbles you. You know, I went from being a very active, did a lot of sport, uh, even as an adult, played in different sport leagues and and uh ran a lot and we were my wife and i were also um we we're fiance at the time we were big uh snow skiers uh and changed all that you know i don't i'm not able to do any of those things anymore so i
0: i i mean i could talk for the whole podcast just about that because i'm the kind of person that is scared to go to the dentist right so i can't even imagine that that, that level of surgery um but but let's pivot a little bit um Let's talk about cloud. I mean, myself and John were on a on a an event recently on a on a panel um, with the CSA talking about cloud. And I'm going to ask you some of the questions that we were asked because I I I think they were good questions, and I'm curious to see somebody kind of that does it day in and day out. What what you what you think? So the first question is really going to be about risk. What what, what are what do you think the top risks are that we are seeing when people kind of move into the cloud at the moment? What what would be the biggest concern? Yeah,
1: so I think some of the, you know, the two things that, that we get faced with a lot is, you know, the risk of visibility. You know, so I think, you know, a lot of security teams and CISOs as well as SOCs you know, still don't have a good grasp of their cloud footprint. Flip- print. And the the risk of shadow IT, you know, so you'll have app teams that are going out and deploying things, you know, with the advent of infrastructure as code, you know, you can have a dev team that can go build an environment at the click of a button, you know, off of Terraform scripts, uh, and that environment, you know, that VPC or VNet can be built out without security being aware of it, right? Uh, you can, you know, click of a button, you can you can open up a public IP address, and, and now you're internet-enabled. Uh, so that lack of visibility is a massive risk. Um, you know, the other thing I'm seeing a lot of is around the compliance part of it, um, just because uh, I think CISOs and security teams were just getting a good handle of compliance in on-prem environments, and then we all ran to the cloud. And now they're saying, okay, well, how do we secure, you know, how do we secure the cloud? How are we compliant with the cloud? Probably the best analogy I've ever heard uh, regarding cloud security is uh, they they uh, compared it to, you know, uh, a new girlfriend or a new boyfriend that you know you you get you're you're very happy, you know. You're like, oh, this person's great. I love them. I want to spend all this time with them. And you ignore all the red flags. You ignore all the risks. and You're just, you know, this is (laughs) amazing. I want to spend all my spare time with this person. And then six months in, you start to say, hey, you know, that that kind of bothers me. Or maybe I shouldn't do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, you know, a year in, you're like, oh, man, we've got a ton of problems we've got to address now. So. yeah, I, I that,
0: think I think that's a great analogy. I'm gonna to add to that and say it's more like dating five or six people at the same time because there's multiple clouds. Exactly. And and well, and that's, that's not the the it, same.
1: It, it, When you start adding multiple cloud environments, SaaS solutions that are that are you know integrated into your environment, it just you know you, exactly you're dating multiple people now, but you love them all, can't get enough.
0: Of you. <laughs> so as as companies kind of are strategizing about moving to the cloud what what would your advice be i mean i i've got an idea and i know john's got an idea but let, let's let's listen to what yours is kind of how do people a- approach that move to the cloud um yeah, yeah uh, the thing is
1: with moving to the cloud a lot of it is driven by your application teams uh and or you know your you're at your your CIO, you know, at larger business strategies are driving, you know, the push to the cloud. It's not necessarily security. Security is kind of drug along, kicking and screaming most of the time. Uh, you know, the thing I always tell tell people is uh, and tell my customers is identify your cloud use cases, understand how you're consuming the cloud. So uh, you know what I mean by use cases, there are you know are, are these web facing applications are these Databases for backups, you know, how are you consuming those cloud and then what are the risks associated with those individual use cases? Because that's what's going to help drive your security roadmap. uh, is understanding those use cases and the risks for those use cases. So the use case analysis followed right up with a, a risk analysis against the use cases are the I think that's the most important strategy and the most effective strategy to actually building out a secure cloud environment. You know, it's very easy to to go in and and do, you know, a CIS benchmark uh, or some, you know, a NIST, you know, um, comparison using, you know, the different tools that are out there, you know, CSPM tools and, and whatnot. And, you know, yeah, that gives you an idea of, okay we've got some problems over here or maybe we need to do some patching there. We've got an open, you know, an open IP address there. But that's not really addressing the risks of your data. That's just kind of a blueprint guideline of, Hey, this might be a good idea to go look over here to really secure and lock down that data. You've got to understand, you know, how it's being used, how it's being consumed network traffic, right. Going back to that, you know, how's, how's the traffic being routed, right. And then put the appropriate security controls based on that risk. The other thing I like to do is uh, doing quantitative risk analysis. So let's start putting dollar values with these risks. Um, So, i don't know if you're familiar with the fair model uh, and yeah. so something that my team uses uh when it comes to this kind of stuff is we actually use the fair model to go through and do quantitative risk analysis so we can start breaking down okay should this risk occur you know should this you know it usually involves a breach what's the financial impact for your organization because if the financial impact is 500 million dollars you understand okay that's what we potentially need to spend in order to have an roi uh, you know, if it's if there's no financial impact to that breach, then how much money should you now spend to protect that data? If there's a million dollars associated with that risk, should you be spending $2 million to secure it? So these are the questions. And, you know, every time, every client's different, right? Uh, you know, it's also hard to measure is the cost of goodwill. You know, for example, we're a security organization. Should we have a breach that's huge loss of goodwill? Uh, and you know, how do you assign monetary values to that? So that's one of the tougher things to calculate. But I still like to go through and do quantitative risk analysis because that's gonna really help you understand how much money you should be investing, where you should be focusing that investment, and you know how to best uh get your get an ROI.
0: I I think to be honest, doing it based on risk is what people should be doing. However, not every risk. Is applicable to that particular organisation, as you've just said.
2: Yeah, and, and that
0: depends on that particular business. It depends on um, the cloud that they're in, and, and and my concern about the cloud and something that, that myself and John have talked about is, there are now so many different options, and they're and they're not yes. really the same, and they're constantly changing and they're constantly being innovated. So that Absolutely. means that when you've moved, for instance, it into AWS or GCP. You may mm-hmm. have been secure six months ago, but because there have been changes to the underlying infrastructure, maybe you're not so secure today. Well, just so- look at the
1: different features and, uh, that AWS has added in the last twelve months. You know the different PaaS solutions and things like that that you can now leverage. So it, you know also the advent of function as a service, where we're just looking at you know you're no longer deploying you know server pools and uh, you're just you know just doing the running the executable on you know. You know, from a shared services model, really, it's their you know their hosted server environment. You're just running that executable. How do you secure that? How do you secure the data as it's being processed uh within that compute? So those are questions that are being asked now. Also, you see a lot of you know organizations you know doing the quote shift left, and how does you know, how does that play into cloud security? How do you see your security you now integrate into those DevOps processes to ensure they're not deploying? you know, uh, infrastructure that's had, you know, riddled with vulnerabilities, you know, as they now run that, you know, infrastructure as code script.
0: I mean, the, the the nice thing about the cloud and what it was kind of there for was to try and make our lives a little bit simpler so that we didn't have to kind of ah. feed <laughs> seed and water that underlying hardware. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that hasn't really worked. John, is there anything you want to add?
2: Yeah, I think we're talking about cloud and the move to cloud in its. Um... You know, the the approach, I think we can all agree that the whole lift and shift and, hey, I want to close my data center that's on prem or save some money from a colo is just is not the right thing. I view it as an opportunity uh, an opportunity to to really um, start again look at uh, a new way of securing my assets so for instance if my in my data center and I've got you know wide open uh connectivity between all my different assets um, as I move an application in there I can start to micro segment it I can put a bubble around it a VCP or whatever you want to call it uh whatever lingo whatever cloud you're using, I think that's an opportunity. Another one is um, starting to get to the point where I'm looking at my applications and the underlying infrastructure more like cattle as opposed to pets. Um, in the past, you we would build these systems out on VMs and, and uh, as Jay mentioned, there was a lot of care and feeding and watering you had to do to these systems. Uh, they were pets. Um, as we move to the cloud, we can turn these uh, assets into Kubernetes and and yeah. uh, make them so they, they don't last long. And I think that's the thing to me uh, that is interesting. If we can, you know, take these assets and reduce the opportunity for dwell time um maybe we get an opportunity you know that chance to stop uh the ransomware if we micro segment it we create visibility because we can see that connectivity going uh that, that back end channeling you know uh command and control going between systems it opens it up it exposes it where in the past it wasn't but uh, i think to your point earlier around um devops uh Uh, CD pipelines and so on and so forth it's it's this opportunity for this great rethink uh and you need to bring in the people that have had experience in it that can teach you the best practices so um don't rush to the cloud take a step back rethink how you're going to uh reposition those systems uh for the future uh and do it in a way that you can add security into it as opposed to adding it later
0: Yeah, Yeah, I I think uh, one of the things that we see the most in the press is permission-related issues with the cloud. Is that yeah. something that you see quite often? Yeah, absolutely. a lot of breaches are related to
1: you know, um, you know, identity, uh, you know, identity and access management-related issues, where you know, somebody left an S3 bucket open, for example. Um, and you know, the reason I think that is is because the cloud, by by uh, nature, is very dynamic, right? Um, so it's constantly shifting, constantly moving, we're constantly re-architecting it. Um, and because of that, they, you introduce that risk of, you know, having a permission set that's open, having an identity, you know, an identity that lingers. Um, and, and there in lies the risk. Um, because And also because of, you know... Um, you know, bad actors are are getting, you know, more intuitive, they're able to, you know, identify gaps and things like this fa- faster and faster now. Uh, so they're able to exploit, you know, even if you might leave a permission set open for 24 hours, you know, it used to not be as, as big a deal. Now it's, it's huge. You know, and then going back to a little bit what John's saying, um, it's interesting. So one of the clients we're working with right now, my team is they, you know, it's a Fortune 100 organization. They were early adopter of AWS. Um, and they've got massive amount, a massive amount of technical debt there into the environment that they built out. And, you know, honestly, they built the data center in the cloud for the most part at first. And that's not the way to effectively operate in the cloud. You're gonna actually end up spending more money than you would have spent just building a new data center in a colo. Um, You know, so it takes a rethink of, you know, the application teams and the infrastructure teams to be effective in the cloud and be able to, you know, build applications that operate, you know, whether it's on Kubernetes, whether it's on a function as a service, Uh, however that may be. But now because those teams are doing a rethink, security has to do a rethink as well. And they've got to be able to be as agile as, as the, you know, their customers, their customers being, you know, the app teams, the infrastructure
0: teams, etc. I think a lot of people move to the cloud like they move home. They pack up all their boxes. They take everything with them that they've ever owned. They get to the new house. A lot of them, they never even unpack. They put them in the garage, they put them in the loft, they put them somewhere else, and guess what? They then move again, and they take the same boxes that they haven't opened for 20 years, and you're taking all that baggage with you. And that baggage inevitably adds to risk. Um, right. So so what what do you see, and maybe maybe this is a difficult question to answer, but what do you see as the biggest risk, or or maybe not the biggest risk, but yeah, yeah, let's stick with that. What do you see as the biggest risks to people moving to cloud that they really, the, the number one thing that if you could advise, advise anybody that's moving to the cloud, what would it be?
1: My, you know, again, going back to identifying your use cases, identify, you know, doing that risk analysis. That's kind of step one. The other thing is don't forget about governance. You know, one of the key pillars to any, you know, per, you know, effective cybersecurity program is a is a good governance team. Teams that have, you know, you know, uh, well written cybersecurity policies, well written standards, well written guidelines that are that are linked to each standard and so on and so forth. So. People we often forget that that's got to be done in the cloud. Now you've got to rethink how that standard now applies to a cloud environment, and then how that configuration guideline applies to the different cloud platforms you may be utilizing in your environment. Because your guidelines can be different for Azure uh, versus AWS, et cetera. So it's how you're applying that standard in that specific, uh, you know, that specific, you know, platform. So a lot of times organizations forget that step. They just move to the cloud. They do what seems cool or seems trendy from a tech perspective, but they forget about that that, that governance layer of having effective policies, standards, guidelines, effective processes, effective risk management, those types of, you know, blocking and tackling, for example, that um, were drilled in our heads, uh, you know, 10 years ago when we were doing on-prem security still need to be in the cloud we just have to rethink how we're doing um so that's one thing but if you're doing a really effective job of those things now adopting things like policy as code you know different enforcement layer controls now become much easier because you have a good governance layer there um and that's something, you know, one of the clients, you know, we're working with right now, we're actually building out a, a, a policy as code solution for them. And it's, you know, they they did that. They ran to the cloud. They forgot about governance. And, you know, we had to come back in and help them, you know, build that out. But now that they've got it and it's it's working and functioning as a oil machine, they're actually able to identify risks far before they're ever deployed in production they can actually block that deployment into production. So that even if an app team goes rogue, they're gonna, you know, that that uh, deployment's gonna be stopped. And it actually allows them to operate a much cleaner cloud environment. Uh, challenges that, you know, again, as cloud is dynamic by nature, you've gotta have a, a governance team and a governance program that's dynamic as well, that can move and shift and update those policies and things like that uh, quickly. Um, because you you can't you know as we you know did 10 years ago in these like in our and these legacy governance programs you know move at the speed of a snail you know that's unacceptable in today's cloud world so you know that challenge I think is is really important and it's overlooked by almost everybody
0: so so I think to me you've highlighted a few key things about the cloud that is probably different in your your kind of legacy on-prem data center and that's that are many people who have got their finger in the pie i mean you've got governance you've got contract negotiations because a lot of that needs to happen yeah and you've got the different cloud vendors who who should own and maybe this isn't a simple question but who who should own the move to the cloud is it your it team is it your security team is it the legal contract team? Is is there a single team or is it more convoluted than that?
1: Yeah, I think um every organization is different. You know, legal, I don't know that I'd ever want legal, you know, running anything because that's just you're gonna get caught up in contract language. <laughs> you never know. <move. laughs> and those that have, have, have dealt with legal and doing like MSAs and you know other legal contracts, it's just the ah God, that's that would just be that would be terrible. Um yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, I think the most successful cloud moves. Let me let me let me talk in that in that text because I've seen it you know done a lot of different ways, but the ones that, in my view, were most successful from a security perspective, it's when they were you know led by the infrastructure team, uh, but the infrastructure team was well integrated into security. I think if, if in those cases your you know chances of success are are much higher. If app teams are owning it, you know a lot of times security gets left out of the loop. Maybe you know nine times out of ten, if apps the app teams are owning it, um, that's just again that's been from my personal experience. Um, but you know that's you know something that we've you know witnessed. But uh,
2: but yeah, yeah. I I think you almost need a. a... A cloud center of excellence I, if the infrastructure team owns it they have bias right so maybe they're vmware so they're like hey it'll be easy we'll just move it into this vmware uh, aws partnership and call it good uh that's not the right approach um yeah. i think you need you know to your point you need somebody from finance cuz when you move to the cloud we're talking opex versus capex different way of operating um you've got to think about optimizing your environments to reduce your spend. Uh, You also need a development team uh, well-versed in infrastructure as code and and how to put the best practices in there. You need a a security person to say, hey, in that pipeline, we need to run some security checks as you deliver that code into the cloud. Uh, Then you also need some some programmers that can help you develop those strips. You need leadership at the end of the day that's Doing the best practices and not thinking, well, we're just going to lift and shift and we're going to take all our, to Jay's point, we're going to take all our old uh, uh, things we've been storing forever and and move them into the cloud. Uh, Leadership has got to say, we got to change the culture. We got to change the way people are thinking. We got to bring in some new blood, people who've done it before and done the best practices. So it's... uh, it's a village at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean,
1: it's it, you know, no one team can do it all. Um, you know, and as somebody that's actually getting ready to move homes, uh, you know, I, I it's resonating well about don't just take all your baggage. But but yeah, I mean, if you're just gonna do a lift and shift into a cloud, it's gonna be far more expensive and it's an OpEx expense that you that, you know that doesn't add to the underlying um evaluation of the company. So yeah, it's um you really have to rethink how your, your applications and services function um, before you can even consider going to a cloud environment. And then the other thing is you have to be dynamic and those apps have to be built in a way that's dynamic um, because you know, rate of change is significantly you know, faster uh, in the cloud. So being able to, to keep up with that is, is key. Uh, you know, if you're just gonna deploy a pool of servers and have some SQL databases and, you know, your, your applications running on those, you know, servers, the way you did it in VMware 15 years ago, um, you are setting yourself up for failure.
0: I, I uh, think yeah. that's critical. And I, I was going to say that. So myself and John were both around kind of pre VMware. So we remember mm-hmm. <clears throat> pretty much running as much as you could on a single box, yeah. um, VMware came along, you, you put the hypervisor on and you ran a single machine pretty much for every single application because you've gone out and you bought all the hardware and you had this single VM sprawl where suddenly you went from having 10 physical machines to like 150, 200 VMs. Now that was great because you could separate everything, you could delegate permissions, you add all that right. flexibility, you could assign resources and all of those clever things that VMware came with and I still love. Um, if you just pick all that up, and move it to the cloud, you, you're paying for all those machines. You're, you're always right. when and they're, they're all the over cloud. provisioned as well. I mean, yeah. that
1: was the nature of in VMware. We always over provisioned, right? Hey, there may be a common, there may be a point in time where this server needs to be, you know, needs needs 12 processing cores. So yeah, just let's give go it whatever with that. I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 but you know, 99.99% of the time you're running at, you know, 7% of CPU
0: utilization. If but you're, you're lucky. Like yeah. more like one percent. Cause I mean Yeah, I and mean, it's, it's
1: you're you're overpaying in, in in that I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in, in cloud environments where they did just that lift and shift. They're overpaying for machines, you know, they're not getting the value. You know, finance looks at it six months down the road and goes, What the heck, guys? We're we're killing ourselves. It's so almost I,
0: literally- like going Sorry, they transition.
2: They've transitioned from an op from a capex spend to an opex spend, and they go to finance like, "Hey, it's going to be opex. Great, we're going to budget for that. Uh, we're going to transition your capex to opex. Cool." And then they overspend, and they're like, "Oh, we need to pull it back. Oh, we need to transition that opex to capex spend. I don't want to be that person in that room with the finance no. guy because yeah. he's he's not happy because they like predictability." And and That's we've,
0: we've we're non-starter. almost we're almost going back. 20 years and what i mean by that is it's better to provision the machines with the right cpu the right memory as if you did with hardware like how much memory do i need and you bought the absolute minimum the server could get away with and then every six months you pop the case off and you put some more in right this is just the way it worked so we're almost going back now where you want to actually right size the machine but Unfortunately, well, I'm I'm argue, you don't even want to, even want to disagree
1: with managing VMs.
0: I mean, I think you need to build cloud
1: solutions that are yeah. servible, that yeah. that yeah. you don't even want to have to deal with that. So they've got, you know, in that way in the back end, the platform is managing your CPU, your memory, et cetera. And they can build it in, you know, they build it out of elastic pool. So as you need more resources, they'll provide them to you. And you have no involvement in that from yeah. a, you know, a responsibility standpoint. It's going to save you money. It's going to save you headaches, and it's going to allow you to focus those resources on securing that environment instead of just managing the operations of.
0: But you you yeah, do so you do have to build your environment with cloud in mind, so you can't do. just
1: absolutely it create an environment.
0: To,
1: yeah, it goes back sure. to having to rethink how you're how you're you know building your applications and your services because they will not work the same way in in today's cloud that they work in an on prem environment.
2: Yeah, servers, wow. they're pets. They're pets. You 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 love the pets and you you take care of them, you feed them, you patch them, you put more memory in them, uh, you know, you add your antivirus and whatever endpoint detection, so on and so forth, then you upgrade them. They're pets, they don't belong in the cloud. You you gotta think about your services in the cloud as cattle. And at the end of the day, they're expendable. If you know you don't like that server and, and you wanna rebuild it, you want to update it. Uh, or you know, you, you, you they don't belong in the cloud. It, it, they have to be cattle, and that's the way it, it yeah. operates. That's the efficient way to operate it. I would argue that it's the more secure way to operate
0: it. I I agree, and i want to I want to pivot a little bit to, to to the zero trust question. So we talk a lot on this podcast about zero trust. Um, it's everywhere. The government are mandating it. We know more or less how it's going to affect the LAN and the WAN. We we understand what that means. We understand micro-segmentation, et cetera. And obviously that kind of moves a little bit to the cloud. But what, what are you seeing from a zero trust point of view? Is it in yeah. people's minds?
1: It is. You know, you know, and here's one of the biggest challenges you have with zero trust. And I with something I always do when a client, you know, wants to bring it up, is how do you define zero trust? Because every client defines it differently. And that's one of the key challenges. Is that there's no set definition. There's, you know, interpretations that we all have. The different vendors and solutions out there. They have their definitions. They typically plug their product, <laughs> right? But um, you know, it's it's it, you know, it, at its core, zero trust is the idea of isolating your resources and validating the identity and privilege level of the user or server account or API, or whatever it may be as often as possible in order to ensure that that data is being consumed and stored properly.
0: Yeah, I I think for me, zero trust is a cultural change. And it's a mindset change. So whether it's deploying on-prem systems, which are still going to be required in some cases, whether it's cloud, whatever it is, we still need to think about it and it should be i would say step number one but that's not fair i think step number one is get your house in order build the foundations and make sure they're solid step number two is think about zero trust before you before you take the step forward um john anything you want to add to that
2: yeah i mean we we talked about it it's a strategy um i really like your definition though the uh talking about uh, getting down to the identity side of things how you're securing things. I thought that was a really good definition. Um, But at the end of the day, it's a strategy. It's the same conversation we're having around cloud. Um, It's how are you going to build these things uh, going forward and how are you going to be thinking about it? Uh, It's just you've got to change the mentality uh, in getting away from, oh, we're going to build a firewall here and and call it good. Uh, it's, It's pervasive across the organization.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of people t- want to talk about, oh, you know, zero trust, that's just you know building network micro segmentation. It's like that's a component of it, but that's not all of it whatsoever. You know, you need to be validating the identity, you need to be validating the privilege level. You know, should that user or identity have have access to that data or that function? Um and how do you do that? And then how do you isolate, protect it so you know a bad actor can't, you know, potentially, you know, get to that data in some other you know, by some other means. Um, so you know, segmentation and isolation is part of it, but it's definitely, you know, I don't even know if I'd say it's half.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would also add in. Um, we we we've had a lot of, lot of conversations with Paul Simmons, who um he was the founder of or well, one of the founders of the Jericho Forum, and he equated it to a business project. That's at the end of the day, uh, what it is, it it has to be put into business languages, it has to, you know, be bought in by the business. And if you don't do that, you're not going to have success. So if you just focus on the IT elements of it, and what the value to IT in terms of securing the organization, uh, I think you failed. If you start to think about it from a business perspective of how do I integrate with a third party? How do I do a merger and acquisition? Yeah. How do I do that securely? Um, how do I bring in contractors? Start thinking a lot bigger, uh, upper level. Um, I think that's how you gain success. And you also gain uh resources uh you you get that seat at the table from the c level they see it as a business enabler as opposed to oh here's security with another strategy that mm, you know they haven't done that great because we just got hacked the other day
1: yeah um and i agree with you i mean i agree that it's absolutely a um you know, it's it's a business conversation if you're, you're not able to to operationalize it at a business level you're never going to be successful um so, and, and, you know, I think that's one of the failures that I've seen a lot, especially with some of our U.S.-based customers, is they only want to think about the technology side. So something that, you know, I spent a lot of time working in South Africa, um, as well as a lot of time working in Asia. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I like about those markets is they're not as vendor driven. So the tech companies aren't, you know, they don't, you typically, they don't even have direct relationships with the customers. So, you know, they t- typically take a very consultative and agnostic approach to how they implement these types of solutions, and that allows for the you know the thought process around the business level to be um, yeah. be introduced. Whereas you know in the U.S. Uh, and this happens other places, I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying it's more prevalent in the U.S. Uh, you know you'll have like a Palo Alto or, or some other you know tech company that's got that relationship with the client that's driving that consumption of their product of Hey, we can do zero trust. Come adopt our framework, and this is how you should do it based on what. We say that's going to drive you buying our stuff and spending money with us, and it you know, typically, the you know, all the other aspects get left in the dust at that point.
0: So, I've got one um question before we kind of pivot onto the fun stuff, and it's really about kind of cloud migration. Is it because it, for quite a while. The cloud was out there and a lot of people didn't like the term. And I mean, I never liked the term. I thought it was a bit of an odd term. I liked the technology, but I thought that the, the, the name cloud was a bit odd and certainly private cloud, which is just your data center. Um, mm-hmm. Is it still increasing? Are more and more people still moving? I know the pandemic came along and I think there was a massive shift, but are you seeing it continue to increase or is it kind of slowing down pre-pandemic? And and a second question that I've just thought of, do you see anybody moving out of the cloud back yeah. So, um,
1: yeah, I would say the rate of, of cloud migration has slowed. I still think a lot of organizations are adopting cloud-first type of strategies. You know, nobody wants to invest in building a data center anymore. It seems, um, or very few, anyway. Uh, but I have actually ran to a customer I just spoke with you know, uh, last month that was um, going the the opposite direction. And The reason is is they did just what we've talked about today. Is they just moved everything to the cloud. They didn't really change any of their operations. And they found it to be wildly expensive. And they say, well, it's too expensive. We're moving back to on-prem. But they really didn't think about it, honestly. And and uh, I hate saying that, but you know, their their enterprise architect failed them
0: in a lot of ways. So it wasn't particularly a problem with the cloud, it was a problem with the way they in, in which they went to the cloud. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was.
1: Their enterprise architect failed them, uh, failed them to, to see the vision of, of how you can actually operationalize the cloud, how you can change your thinking and save money. Uh,
0: I, I think that's the critical point that anyone listening to this or watching this needs to understand this. You need to plan, 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 then execute. Don't just pick it up and move it because you'll end up in a situation where you've got the same infrastructure, but in the cloud, it's not designed to be in the cloud. It's going to be more expensive than on-prem and then you're going to fail. Um, yeah, I
1: mean, and, you know, I have seen some organizations that have
0: kind of done that lift and
1: shift model and then very rapidly transitioned. Yeah. So that can be done and you can be successful. There is some technical debt you'll have to deal with and some, you know, a little bit of lingering cost. But, um, you know, it, you can be successful. You know, I think the the biggest thing to being successful in the cloud is understanding that it is a dynamic environment and you need to be dynamic with it. You need to change and constantly be changing the way you think, the way you consume, the way you architect. And if you can do that, you will continue to be successful in the cloud. Because I'll be honest, and John, I'd like your opinion on this as well is, uh, if you, you know, the way we're building applications now to run on Kubernetes or run on, you know, function as a service, if we continue to do that for the next five years, are we gonna be successful?
2: And I don't think I, maybe I I think it's this mentality around and I said it uh assets living for a long time um I think the more and more we move to something that you know is more cattle based and and the asset lives for less than twenty four hours I think we're more successful because we start to reduce the dwell time we start to open things up it's infrastructure as code it's more visible I think that's moving security forward um moving your assets to the cloud and VMs it, it's not going to be a successful path I that's my hope at least because I tend to be an optimist uh I'm sure there's a lot of other cans that start to open up and other opportunities for uh exposure. Um, I happen to be reading a book right now that's scaring the hell out of me and maybe make, make make me rethink and that's uh tell me how I think it's a what is it this is the way the world ends essentially it's the story <laughs> of all the zero days. Uh, that have gone on and, and you know the the race amongst uh, nation states to accumulate zero days for offensive <laughs> capabilities. It's an incredible book, but uh, don't read it uh, going out and traveling because then it just makes you paranoid. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm an optimist and I think this transition to more ephemeral type systems uh, will help security.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm actually reading uh, the hard things about hard things. Uh, that's, a good, yeah, yeah, that's so, a good um, one too. Uh, yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah, guy, um, uh his name's uh Dave Cole. He's chief product officer at CrowdStrike. So he he put me onto that book. So I'm I'm going through that
2: right now. That's a good one.
0: So I, I'm gonna start with a fun question and then I'll let John ask you because we're 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 ticking down on time. Mine's gonna be a food-related question. Um What's been your best food experience that you can remember? And it doesn't necessarily have to be that it was a good meal. It's about the whole experience. It could be a picnic on the beach or whatever, but best food experience. So
1: probably one of the best food experiences was in, um, I was. Uh, I went to do some postgraduate work in Madrid at the IU Business School, and uh, me and some colleagues uh, kind of walked into this random restaurant. And while it was late in our terms of, of um, you know, getting dinner, I think it was like 8 p.m. or something, you know, that's that's when the restaurants are just opening in, in Spain.
2: Yeah,
1: and we were the only customers in there. And um, there was four of us and we kind of sat down and people, everybody was looking at the menu. I was like, guys, do you trust me? And uh, I said, yeah. And I, and I I basically I asked for the chef to come out of the kitchen and I, I looked at him. I said, we're the only ones in here. Wow. We we were just five courses or how many courses do you think we need wow and basically we sat there for two hours and just whatever the chef felt like cooking and experimenting with they brought to the table and you know it was amazing it was really and you know also really good some really good wine as well uh you know South African wines so I don't know if you guys are familiar with Cape Town but it was some of South African uh red wine that we were drinking it was no. Uh, you were yeah, very was, lucky
0: to get served at 8 o'clock. A lot of them don't even open that early. I know. Like I said, they, we walked
1: in, and there was literally no one. We're like, what? Is you know, what? Like, Why is it? And they said, oh, we just opened. Like, oh, I mean, we're hungry, so we're sitting down. <laughs> but yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. And, and what was great about that is, you know, we had the restaurant to ourselves. The the chef really kind of, you know, took an artistic right. approach to the, the challenge we put in front of them, and it was fun.
2: So oh, the chef, the chef's journey is the best. Anytime you have an opportunity just to go out and explore and and live life or live taste through a chef, it's always a great experience. Um, I've done it, and and I I try to do it as often as I can when I get the opportunity. So uh, that's yeah. awesome. Um, ultimate vacation, bucket list vacation, uh, anything you have in your future. That you're looking forward to or considering or <laughs> yeah, wanting so we've got to a do. five-year-old, so a lot
1: of our vacations oh, right, know now this are problem. you know um focused around you know Disney and you know things that five-year-olds, you know, water parks and whatever, you know, five year olds like to do. Although, although our five-year-old is oddly obsessed with ice hockey. Um, oh, wow. So we uh we spend a lot of time doing ice hockey related activities. Uh, but um uh, a cool bucket list vacation that my wife and I have talked about doing you know for years and you know hopefully one day we'll we'll get the opportunity to is we want to basically fly into southern France, get on the train and take a few weeks, take to you know take like two weeks and basically take the train through the Alps. So we hit Zurich, Geneva, Mm. Munich, um, and then kind of end up in like Vienna um and just kind of go through, you know, go through the Alps um ideally in December, because we can hit the Christmas markets in Germany if you guys have ever done that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's kind of our next bucket list, um, you know, vacation is to really, you know, break down and do the, uh, the, you know, an Alps type of train trip.
0: Vienna um, has one of the best Christmas markets I've ever been they to. They do.
2: It's amazing. Yeah. They do. Yeah. I, I was there as a as a youngster, as they would say, uh, back in '89. 89. <laughs> I'm really dating myself now, uh, but yeah, I could still. I would still have been, would have been the, in elementary school in '89, so that <laughs> just gonna make, make you feel worse. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Jay always kills me. He introduces us, and he's like, "Hey, and we have 50 years of experience running IT infrastructure, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Oh God, just stop!" But we do. Me, dude. I
1: know, but <laughs> yeah, I've been in the industry about sixteen years now, 16, 17 years now. Uh, so, yeah, you know, not not near not near fifty, but you know, um, enough time, I think, to to be able to, to to see some significant change, and that's the cool part. I think, I do think I yeah. I've been able to come into the industry at a really transformational time.
0: I, I think to be honest, I've really enjoyed this. It's it's a slightly different topic that we don't often talk about the cloud, but but I think it. We covered security, we've covered cloud, we've covered zero trust, they're all intertwined. It's really good to speak with someone that's got the experience that you've got and answer some of the questions that we may have thought about, but we haven't necessarily been able to ask. I have really appreciated you coming on. Thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.